Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode eight of the Define Normal podcast. This week, I'm joined by Tori Bell for the second part of our Black History Month series. Tori is a community builder, an epic Black woman, and of course, a friend of mine. Tori founded the employee resource group Black Women at Facebook, and most recently, she founded her own community and newsletter called Inclusion Unpacked. In this interview, we get through what Tori wants to gain from her new community and what she hopes to teach them, how she successfully builds community, and we talk about how white women can be better allies in this space. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to another episode of Define Normal. This week we have a very special guest, Tori Bell is joining me. Hi, Tori. Hi, Shelby. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'm so excited that you're here. It's Black History Month. And as I told the listeners last week, I am only featuring Black guests on the show for the whole month of February. So I'm honored you're one of the guests. I'm so excited. Thank you. I I feel so honored to be here. Thank you very much. I mean, you've earned your spot. I'm sure the (laughs) listeners, if they don't know already, there's like a lot to share about Tori. We have a lot in common, but also she has a lot that she's building on her own. And I can't wait to get into it. Where are you from? Like, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, um, I'm originally from Wichita, Kansas. I'm really sad about the Chiefs losing last night, so I don't want to talk about it. I just had to call it out. And yeah, I grew up in the Midwest. I always had dreams. I live in New York now, but always had dreams of living in New York. I remember writing in my diary back when diaries were a thing. I don't know if they're still a thing, but (laughs) writing in my diary about moving to New York and um, when I was younger, I thought that I wanted to like work in magazines. Like I thought that was so cool to be like an editor of a magazine. So I just kind of imagined my life like that was like very different than, you know, this Midwest. Like, you know, I was often the only black girl in my class and like, you know, just didn't get a lot of exposure to other people who looked like me. So I really dreamed and like yearned for, I don't know, just like a community of like, black women and people who looked different and had like progressive ways of thinking. And so, yeah, I always wanted to live in New York and what was it like growing up in Wichita, Kansas, safe, vanilla. (laughs) You know, I look back now and I, I, I think like, oh my gosh, like those were racist moments. (laughs) You know, I was uh, on the cheer squad growing up and I was the only black girl on the squad. And I remember we were we had to wear our hair straight like it was like a thing within cheer and I remember one for one game I didn't have a straightening iron and so I asked one of my friends if I could uh use hers for the game and she literally looked at me and was like I'm afraid that your hair is gonna break my iron so I'm not gonna allow you to use it and I remember at the time I was like, you know, it was I was embarrassed for myself. I remember feeling so such shame and like, oh my God, like I'm so embarrassed that I even asked her. I shouldn't have asked, you know. But now when I think back at it, I'm like, that was so racist. And how do you even call her a friend, you know, to like to say something like that? Anyway, my um uh growing up it was filled with a lot of those moments that are, you know, cringe worthy, but definitely made me the person that I am today, like I'm super thankful for those experiences because it pushed me to want to be around more black people, be around people from my community who kind of understood my background. But yeah, super thankful to grow up in Wichita and all of the crazy experiences that that came with it. 
You and I bond over that a lot, being black girls that grew up in the Midwest in uh, mostly white environments with those anecdotal stories, which almost it takes getting out of the Midwest to fully contextualize what happened and why it was inappropriate. And so it's life has been full of those moments as I get older and older that I'm like, oh, wait, that wasn't OK. I can't believe that. But as a kid, you're just like, oh, yeah, right. I shouldn't have asked her. Like, yeah, because of course. All you want is just to fit in. And so like anything that like, you know, sticks out, it's like, ah, you know, why? Like, you know, I was just, yeah, so embarrassed. And I was also embarrassed. My, a lot of my friends were really wealthy. I went to a private school and I was not, and I was always so embarrassed for them to drop me off at home and like see where I lived and stuff. But you know, like now as an adult, I'm like, your real friends will not care about those things at all, you know? But even, you know, I still have friends from high school now and one of them, we were talking recently and she was just like, wow, like I look back at your experience and I just feel like I'm ashamed at how, you know, I just never asked about, you know, you as a black person and, you know, what your experiences were like. And I really appreciated her saying that. But when we were chatting about it, I just remember thinking like, I lived these like two lives where it's like you go to school and you put on your Becky face, as I call it. And you go home and, you know, I was watching like Girlfriends and, you know, watching BET and not being able to like talk about it with your friends, but just kind of like living those two lives. Just very interesting growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, hundred percent. It was the Becky face is funny. I'm going to have to steal that. It was going and talking about the things you knew they liked. And I grew to like, I mean, we talked about this before with music and just various things. Like I loved all of the music that my parents thought it made no sense for me to love. I remember at church on Mother's Day, they played Daughters by John Mayer, and I loved that song. And I knew that song. And my mom was like, what, what is this? Like, I was like getting my whole life, like, yes, John Mayer. I was so proud I knew the song. And my mom was like, what are we listening to? And so it was really two worlds of John Mayer. me loving John Mayer, me loving oh. Birkenstocks, me loving... Like just the things OC. that weren't a thing. <laughs> yeah. The hills, like the every, everything, everything. And then at home, you're right. Like my mom watched Girlfriends. I rewatched it on Netflix during quarantine. My friends to this day probably have not watched Girlfriends. I mean, we've, we've never talked about it, but it's yeah. iconic. I was like, oh my God, Girlfriends is on Netflix. Like I'm like probably the only one in my friend group at home that cares about that. Yeah. And they're probably hype off of like friends. You know what I mean? But those shows don't really speak to us, or at least they don't speak to me. But I so relate to your John Mayer <laughs> comment. I one time I went to his concert, and I remember at the end of it, I was so sad because I was like, I'm never gonna meet him in real life. Like, I'm he's never gonna know me, <laughs> and he needs to know. Me. <laughs> but yeah, I had John Mayer tapes. I had a, I drove a 1992 Volvo, and I I transferred my. John Mayer CDs onto cassette tapes and I would listen to them faithfully because he has this song it's called Victoria but he sings about a girl named Tori and I'm like he is singing about me he's singing about me okay he doesn't know it yet he just needs to know me so I feel oh you on the John God. Mayer it was so serious <laughs> and it was two different worlds because even I remember my mom being like okay this is interesting as far as the music taste because it was just all over the place like I liked everything and it was just really a culmination of those two worlds of like having my space with my friends and listening to what they listened to and then being at home with my parents who like had no idea any of that was going on. 
it's that it's those anecdotal stories it's so much but i would say i mean it's an accurate representation of like who we are i mean we yeah. have still a lot of those two worlds ingrained in us and so i want to talk a little bit about how growing up in those spaces made you want to build community so you spoke about after wichita you're like okay i never really grew up in black spaces and i miss that element of seeing people who look like me so was it college where you were where you were able to get that opportunity or was it not until you moved to new york like in high school i was always involved in something like committees you know you name it when i was thinking about college i really really wanted to go to spelman like that was the school that i just knew i was going to and i visited and i you know i loved it but it was so expensive and you know i had to pay for my own college there was an all, another all women's college in atlanta that i happened to visit at the same time it's called agnes scott and i i really liked it so i applied to agnes scott and they ended up giving me a scholarship which was great um so i, I went there because i couldn't afford spellman and i could afford agnes scott and i was like whatever it's gonna get me to atlanta and i want to be around more black people great oh let me back up really quickly so because I had to pay for my own school, I went to Wichita State my first year and I, I worked at a restaurant and like saved money. And so anyway, so yeah, my sophomore year, I, I went to Agnes Scott and it's a really small school. It's about the same size as Spelman. I think the student body size is like a thousand people. And I, re I remember feeling like, whoa, I, I don't like, I don't have my people. Like where, where's my community? Because everybody kind of already formed their cliques. And I remember talking to like the administration, people that I was friends with, asking them if like a transfer student organization existed <laughs> and it didn't. So I actually created a transfer student organization on campus. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to meet all the other transfer students that exist on campus. And so that was like the first time I'd ever like created a community. It was like really tiny, you know, we had like a small budget. That was the first time that I got interested in it. And then <laughs> when I think back, like, Every single space that I've been in, I have created a community in some capacity. Like my first job, I worked at an investment bank uh, after college, like managing an internship program. My very first job out of college, um, same thing. They didn't have a, a black like employee resource group. And so I started it there, it kept snowballing from there. I left my investment banking firm and then I helped to start this startup called Jopwell, which is like a diversity and inclusion startup. And my job there was to kind of like manage the undergrad population on our platform. I managed like our campus ambassador program, started that. <laughs> and then at Facebook, I left, you know, Jopwell joined Facebook. And again, I think just like starting communities was so um, ingrained in me that when I joined the company, again, I really wanted to connect with black women um, just because I came from Jopwell and it was only black and brown people that I was working with. So I was really used to that. So coming to Facebook, I was like, whoa, huge culture shock. And so I asked the diversity team about, you know, if black women at Facebook existed and it didn't. One of the diversity members encouraged me to start it and started black women at Facebook. And it just became this like, huge thing. But when I look about look at my like patterns throughout life and like, oh, I, like that's just what I do. Like I've, I've done that literally <laughs> everywhere. So it's like, of course, I would have started black women at Facebook or I would have started something here. You know, if I don't feel connected to people or if I want to feel like a part of something, I, I don't like making my problems like somebody else's problems. I like just being like, all right, like, let's figure it out. My solutions to most things just happen to be community. I think that comes from living in the Midwest and having Midwestern values of connecting to your peers and like, you know, 
being a part of the YMCA growing up, like it's just like very <laughs> ingrained in you growing up. I think that's just like who I am is just a community builder, like at heart. Like I, I think I'll always be that person. I love solving problems through community um, efforts and I love like the journey that it's taking me on. And now, you know, my, my job at, at Facebook is literally managing internal community. So it's very. So it's all come full circle from being in Wichita, Kansas and that <laughs> community. And, and I agree with you in the Midwest community is really important, whether it be your school or like, a Girl Scout troop or the people you play sports with, like those people who I've met early on, like that is the same community I have at 27 years old. That's definitely something that was ingrained in me also. And I agree. I think there's this consistent through line of you creating communities at each step that you mentioned. What is your secret sauce? How do you continue to build these communities? Communities can be formed around anything, whether it's like a, I'm interested in like bubble tea or, or like an affinity community. There's somebody to be deeply interested and invested in the topic. But then also I've been reading a lot of community books rituals are really important like what do you have to come back to for black women at facebook it's various events throughout the year but then also the uh, annual summit that we host every year that's like the ritual for the community having you know if it's like one annual thing or something consistent monthly something that's like ritualistic that your members know like okay i can expect this out of the community is super important Having uh, the ability to engage with your community, not just like, creating it, but also like meeting them at their level, I think is very important. Just having a deep interest and a desire is, is the biggest thing. It's your passion that sustains you. You have to yeah. care about the community and be invested in the community to want to push it and continue to give them this effort. And also just that was perfect having tentpole events and things that the community can depend on to build. So Yesterday was one of the biggest temple events of the NFL. Like every year there's going to be a Super Bowl. That's a big moment for the community. So just realizing yeah. there are these exactly. things that people look forward to. It doesn't have to be as big as the Super Bowl. Communities are can be much smaller than that. For black women specifically, when we look at black women at Facebook or even what you were building at prior companies, how do you make space for black people of all types? So if we're talking black women specifically, you and I relate a lot as being two black women from the Midwest who went to predominantly white schools. That's yeah. our experience, but how do we make space for black women who had an opposite experience? Maybe they did go to Spelman or black women who went to like an Ohio state and, you know, maybe they joined a white sorority. Like, you know what I mean? There's so many different experiences. So when you're building a community, how do we make space for different people? I actually think that's a really good conversation that we as the black community need to start getting comfortable having. For example, like if I were to go, you know, in New York to like a, a big event that was mostly black people, I can almost guarantee like the type of music that would be played, which is great. Like, you know, we all vibe to it. But then it's almost like we're not allowing space for other people to exist who might be interested in other types of music or I, I just yeah, find that interesting. Like, for example, like the Swag Surf song, I hate that song so much. But I feel embarrassed saying that because that's like our national anthem, you know? Every time it comes on, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to swag start, but I'm going to do it because I feel silly doing it. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like in my soul, this is me, you know, but I'll do it. I think we need to start entertaining conversations around just there's varied experiences within the black community and not one is like 
the experience, although, you know, I love my trap music. I love Soka. I love all that. But I also would love space to exist in, in other forms as well. I guess if I think about Black, you know, women or like the, the events that we've done within Black women at Facebook, we try, we tried, you know, and having safe space for, for everybody, but you're never going to be perfect. We're not like, we don't exist in a monolith. Like we are multifaceted and celebrating that as well. Yeah, I think across the board, you made a good point that we should conversation because I'm sure there are many Black people who felt oh, I should like this more than I like this because people expect me to, or, oh, it's strange that I like like this. There's a a big spectrum to being Black. There is your experience with your parents. There's your experience and where you went to school. And then some of it is just innately you. Like, I just like this. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. in New York because it's the, this is the most Black people I've ever been around living in New York City. Coming from Dayton, Ohio, I didn't have multiple Nigerian friends or any really friends that were from Africa in my close circle. I didn't have friends who were from the Caribbean who could say they love soca music or reggae or any of that. I, when I moved to New York, I remember telling a friend who's really into soca music. I'm like, I don't really like know anything about soca music. I couldn't name three songs. So it's interesting because I felt uncomfortable saying that. I felt like I was breaking some kind of creed, Like I genuinely don't know anything about your culture because you have to think I lived in Dayton, Ohio. The people who were black were just black. Like there was no, there are a couple African families who lived in our neighborhoods, but I was not close friends with anyone who wasn't just African American. And even then I didn't have that many black friends. So it was a mind blowing experience to see the layers of the culture. And at 27 years old, I'm still learning all the time oh, okay. I didn't know that you guys did that. I, I didn't do that in my house, but we're both black. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. The, the black American experience, like, you know, us being descendants of slaves, I don't, it's just very interesting in comparison to, you know, people from Africa or people from like, you know, the Caribbean, you know, we all make up one collective black people we're different and not, you know, different in the sense that, you know, we come from different backgrounds and it's really cool that we're able to, to celebrate cultures collectively. But I I do think it's interesting just in thinking about like the black American experience. I don't think that gets talked about enough. It's very specific and it's different than those other experiences, but I don't think I realized that until I had something to compare it to. I knew my experience wasn't the norm, whatever that means, because we have our own parents as a reference. And I would be curious to hear, you know, what your back, the background of your parents is. But my parents grew up in more black environments than I did. So my yeah. mom moved around more as um, as a child. So she was in some environments that were black and some not so much. But ultimately, my mom did go to an HBCU for college. And my dad went to all black Catholic private school in New Orleans and New Orleans is already pretty black. So it's, although he went to a PWI, all of his predominantly white institution, all of his friends from college are black. So when I was having my experience, I already knew in my head, we are doing two separate things. Yes. So it's interesting to just kind of witness how your experience can be separate from those, even of the people closest to you, your parents. It's so true. Yeah. As you were explaining that, you know, I think about my parents, their college experience. Yeah, it was, even though they went to a predominantly white institution, 
like all of their friends are black, you know, whereas now, you know, that might not be the case. That certainly wasn't the case for me. I had friends of all backgrounds. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is, so my parents, you know, they, I guess they were both born in the sixties. My mom talks about a lot how when she went to school, you know, there was, there were separate schools, like for black and white. It's like, yeah, I mean, I really loved it because I was learning about black history. All my teachers were black. Like we were really celebrated. But then when, you know, schools were integrated, this, she had to have been in elementary school. She was like, I stopped learning that stuff. And like, honestly, I don't know if, you know, integration was like the best thing for the black community because, you know, I stopped learning about our history and started to have to learn a new way of thinking. And I found that to be really interesting because, again, to your point, her experience is so different than mine. I've only known one way of, like, education and, and learning. But, yeah, so so interesting how you can all be under, you know, the same roof, come from similar backgrounds, but have very different experiences. Exactly. And I, that goes back to why community is so important because people need places to say, hey, my experience is different, but I want to hear about yours. And, and just to kind of celebrate and be together. And now you're working on building your own community. So outside of work, you're building Inclusion Unpacked, which is your newsletter. I want to hear more about that. What made you launch it? Can you tell people what it is? Just give us a little bit of an overview. Yeah, so I'll start with what Inclusion Unpacked is. It's a weekly newsletter for female founders, community leaders, managers to really understand how to navigate the current diversity climate with the help of one of my mentors who used to run this company called Girl Boss. Her name's Sophia. So at the beginning of last year, uh, Sophia had just launched her new venture. It's called Business Class. And it's for female entrepreneurs to understand how to kind of grow your business from the ground up. And I actually met Sophia through Black Women at Facebook, like one of our events years ago, and we just stayed in touch. And I would send her ideas as to how she could be further supporting her Black community on Girl Boss. And I think she appreciated me sending like anecdotes or thoughts or suggestions as she built her company. So when she launched this new venture, she wanted it to feel and be uh, inclusive. And so she asked if I could teach a diversity and inclusion course within business class. And of course, I, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. I launched like an, a one hour course as to how to build an inclusive organization from the ground up. After that course launch, I would get a lot of emails and messages from people who were taking Sophia's business class course saying like, hey, I have a follow-up question. Like, how do you navigate big racial movements like the storming of the Capitol or George Floyd or, you know, big moments like that? Like, how do I show up for my, for my audience on social or how do I show up for my employees? And I would get these like random messages And I thought it would be helpful to kind of package it all in one newsletter. And honestly, it was to help people who had had been asking from business class, like follow-up questions. But then it's really turned into this like massive newsletter. Honestly, overnight, I I launched it like a month ago. And, you know, I feel really fortunate that I think the timing of, you know, what's going on politically, people are starting to be aware of racism and their place in that and really wanting to unlearn like potential past racist behavior or, or not, you know, replicate that to future generations. So yeah, you know, launch inclusion unpacked. And then this month I partnered with Girl Boss to do a 28 day black history month challenge. 
where every day there's just small, tiny challenges that you can do to immerse yourself into black culture. Um, some things are big, some things are small, like, you know, following Rachel Cargill or Elaine Walteroth on Instagram, like understanding their, their activism and their way of thinking or donating to the Bill Project or watching Laverne Cox's documentary or learning about uh, James Baldwin. You know, I, I tried to give very simple tasks, but also tasks that felt real and, you know, historical. Our community is, uh, you know, to your earlier point, Shelby, is, is very um, multifaceted. And I wanted to highlight that in this challenge. And I've had uh, over a thousand people join. So really excited about it. And you can still join. This is the second week. So we are it's, on day It's eight. really great. It's taken off. And I, I feel very thankful that people are eager and interested in learning. So that's all you can ask for. I'm proud of you. I think it's something you've been talking about for a long time, not only having a community which you successfully built, but also putting out something of your own because a lot of the work is beyond the community. Community, I think, is for fostering. It's our place to be safe and hang out, but then there's still another leg of education. And it's complicated because as a Black woman, how much education do you actually want to do? But then there is a bit of me and obviously a bit of you that's like, here are the things, here are the things you need to know. I'm not going to correct your every step, but a little bit of just a guide and take it if you want. I mean, obviously these people, you have over a thousand people opting in to join your newsletter and hear more. So I think that's an amazing accomplishment. Who is your target demographic? Who do you want to be subscribing to this newsletter? I want people who are interested in learning, unlearning racist behavior to sign up. I will say that the majority of my demographic on the newsletter is your millennial white woman but you know you certainly don't have to be white or a woman to to subscribe to the newsletter i think also you know women in general broader bucket we're creating businesses at a higher rate than men and like you know we really want to get this like diversity and inclusion piece right at the beginning so I think that's a piece of it, too, is that there are a lot of female founders out there. There are a lot of people who are wanting to get it right. So it makes sense. My background lends itself well to the female community. It does. Millennial white women seems like the perfect target. They're in our age group and we know how to reach them and how to speak to them. What are millennial white women, in your opinion, mostly getting wrong about the diversity space? I think right now what they're getting wrong, again, it's not everybody, but how they're showing up on social, people are still very confused by. Let's take it back to the summer. People were posting a black square to support Black Lives Matter. And then like weeks, months after that, there's no follow-up as to what they've personally done to dismantle racism and white privilege. I think they can be more vocal about the work that they are still continuing to do and what they are learning and unlearning. And it doesn't have to be, you know, something huge to post or to share, but I, I really do believe we're moving into a time where it's not enough as a brand to just exist and to just sell your product and your product's really cute. People want to know, especially Gen Z's, want to know who you are, what do you stand for? Am I going to feel safe, you know, being a part of your community, you know, taking it back to communities? Every brand is a community now. So forget like just selling a product. 
am I going to feel safe being a part of your community? Do other community members want me here? Do you want me here? Are you going to advocate for me? Again, like white founders are still learning, but they could do a better job in showing up for for us and being more vocal on social media because that's where we, we all are right now. I agree. It's a bit of social and it's also about showing up just in your life. So social can be very performative. And I also think it's not everyone's bag. Like some people feel very uncomfortable posting on social and they're like, if I post on social, that doesn't mean I did the thing. And I think it's about finding your lane and kind of to relate it back to us when it came to Black Lives Matter, I knew like protesting is not my thing. We're in a global pandemic. I'm not going to a protest, but I can donate. I can amplify those voices of people who are posting amazing things. I can share my story. I found my lane. And so my ask yes. for millennial white women is to find your lane. So posting a black box to your point and going is not it, but is it donating? Is it talking to your white friends about your privilege? Honestly, that's like the, to me, that is like the, the golden best. ticket. Yeah. Talk to your white friends mm -hmm. about what's going on because a lot of people come to us and they want to talk about, wow, I heard this racist member say this wow, this girl I went to college with is so racist. Look at what she posted on Facebook. I'm like, I have my own racist people on my Facebook feed. I don't need additional yeah. screenshots. You need to talk to them or you need to unfriend them. Like fix mm -hmm. the company you keep. I think that's the hardest thing for me is people writing on social media and, and really, it's like really kind of showing up. Like I saw yeah. what you posted on social, but then I also see you with this like friend who we know is racist. So I don't know what to think now they have to get really brave and i i don't know what that breaking point is going to be for them as a collective but yeah to your point it's like you like why are you hanging out with somebody that's like racist like why are you okay with this person posting it and then showing it to you i don't know what what it's going to take for them to get really brave you know we can throw educational resources at, at them all day every day but i i really hope that it is in their like 2021 and beyond vision board to understand racism and privilege and their their place in that and to work to dismantle the system you know because it it contributes to sexism in the workplace which we all know you know they face you know it's like it it's not just racism impacts us like it has residual effects it's in your best interest to dismantle this because it benefits you not only me, but you as well, you know? Right. A win for black women is a win for everyone. So for if people are looking out for us, it's going to only be on the up and up for them too. And on the flip side of that coin, I have had some white women who've been amazing allies. And I would love to hear what you think a good ally looks like as a white woman. I know Sophia's partnering with you on inclusion unpacked and amplifying your voice and to me that's really great allyship but i'd love to hear what you think makes up a great ally talking about racism and privilege within their communities not performative allyship you know not just posting a black square but really doing the work calling their friends out when they like on their bad behavior is another thing i think glenn and doyle does a good job of of like learning and unlearning. She co-founded the Share the Mic series with Lovey and Bozema St. John. And it's basically on Instagram, white women, like celebrity white women give up their Instagram pages to prominent black women to amplify their voices. Implementing more 
you know, systematic conversations like that are really great. Consistently doing the work, you know, <laughs> I think that's just like the biggest thing is just being consistent with it and knowing this is a lifelong journey and not, I'm going to check this one box today, or I'm going to attend this training a month from now. Like, what are you doing every single day? This is going to take a long time to fix. And sitting in it when it's uncomfortable, for me, that's something that's so paramount. There are moments where I've had conversations with friends that are uncomfortable. I'm like, what you said was kind of racist, feeling awkward about it, or just not recognizing privilege. There is this and I would, I would love to hear if you feel the same way. To me, my experience has been because I sit in similar spaces as a lot of white people, they assume we have similar experiences. Yes. And that can be to my detriment sometimes. Even the antidote you shared about having to pay for your own college or not being able to go to a school because it costs X amount. Like sometimes when you say things like that out loud, people are like, oh, really? That's a thing for you? That doesn't mean it's a thing for all black women or all black people, but it's just simply the erasure of my experience because we sit in the same space. I think I would love more white people to acknowledge our lives are different for better or for worse. Sometimes to me, I think it's a positive and sometimes it's really not. And so it's helpful when people can acknowledge that things are different. I, the acknowledgement sometimes is very helpful to me because I feel clumped in with their experience. And I'm like, no, this experience is very different than yours. It's very different. I mean, what I'm learning is that, the way they were raised is very different than the way that we were raised. Not every, you know, obviously this is not every white woman in America, but the ones that I've been exposed to, you know, it's more of like, oh, you know, let's not talk about it. Or I don't, you know, like, I don't want to go there or it's uncomfortable for me versus what I see from the black community and what I know as a black woman going towards the problem or going towards the solution. I would just love to see more people from the white community and white allies going towards the problem. Because you're right, our experiences are so different. The housing system, the fact that our ancestors were not allowed to own homes and we weren't allowed to build wealth. And it is just now our generation or maybe our parents' generation where we are able to build wealth for our families. Or the fact that we don't bear our own last names. Our last names are of our slave masters. Like, you know, like we are still wearing our slave masters' last names. Like that's it's just wild to me that, you know, but I think also it's a problem with America and like, we don't want to deal with it. Like we haven't really dealt with the fallout from slavery or the fallout from the civil rights movement. Like we haven't dealt with it. So we're telling people, you know, inadvertently to not deal with it by, by not addressing it at like <laughs> the big, you know, US America level, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot of erasure. You're expected mm -hmm. to just live as if it never happened, even though it is very much a big part of our history. And it comes up, like you said, when it comes to things like wealth, I have, especially in New York City, we meet no shortage of people who make a lot of money, come from families with a lot of money, and sometimes speak to you as if that was your experience too. It's like, no, just because I work at this company or I work in this space or I live in New York City, it does not mean that I had that same experience, even not even me as an individual, like as a community that it by large is not the experience that people are living, like say the Obamas and even Michelle Obama grew up on the South side of Chicago. So it's like, I mean, even they were both, they both paid off their student loan debt while in the white house. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they did not come from wealth. It's really interesting. It's a good point. It's like, we don't all have that same experience and like, let's talk about it. Like that's what, 
I think that's all. That's what will help you know solve these issues is having real, honest conversations and not being triggered by it. Yeah, being willing to dive into it. Mm -hmm. So when you think about Inclusion Unpacked and what you have already built as far as the newsletter, and you said every brand's a community. So your brand is going to continue to launch into a community. What do you see for the community? Because you have an interesting space. You have you as a Black woman with an audience of millennial white women, <laughs> by and large. Everyone's welcome. But I know. But what are you hoping? What are you hoping to do with the community? You know, I think about this a lot because you know I come from leading black women at Facebook and, you know, we're all black women and we get it. You know, when I think about Inclusion Unpacked as its brand, I want this to be a safe space for people to unlearn what they have been taught. And so I am willing to, to provide educational resources, to have conversations, also hold people accountable. You know, I don't, I want to call people in. I don't want to, you know, cancel people or call people out. But at the same time, like, I really want to hold people accountable and have real honest uh, conversations. When I think about the brand as a whole, yeah, I, I want to be welcoming, friendly, approachable. Like, I want people to want to learn this stuff. And I don't want to put people off. I know some people like to take the approach of, I'm going to screenshot this, I'm going to call you out. And that works for some people. But my main objective is to get as many white allies on board and to understand the behavior as possible. And if it, if it means not calling people out publicly, but having conversations in private, totally fine, as long as you are committed to doing the work. But what I will say is, you know, welcoming, friendly, but I want to hold people accountable. Yeah, the accountability piece is the only way that Black women are going to agree to do some of this work. You're not going to just put it in an echo chamber. You need people to receive it and apply it. The most interesting thing about the community is seeing people interact with it. It's been really cool to see the feedback and people sharing it. Are there any learnings that you already have from your first few posts? I get a lot of follow-up questions. What I'm learning is that, again, this is not a blanket statement, but this is, I guess, the people that are in my community, they do not like being called out. And they get really triggered by that. You know, I've never called people out, but... I get a lot of questions like, oh my God, like this, this page, like call this person out. Like, why did they do that? Like, I'm, I'm really afraid to like say anything. And so, yeah, I think that's like the biggest learning is that they're very fragile. <laughs> and I guess that that can be frustrating as, you know, a black woman having had to grow up like, you know, very resilient. And so I guess, yeah, just try to meet them where they are and understand that it's like their upbringing and not like this innate who they are. But that's like the biggest thing is how fragile they actually are. It's pretty hard to navigate that. I know for me personally, I have a hard time when I'm experiencing white fragility because something happened to me or, yes. you know what I mean? If someone says something negative to me, but then you're acting fragile and I'm supposed to make space for you to be fragile and not call you out. I'm not big on call out culture just because it's not my personality, Yeah, but I am very big on accountability. And so I have had instances, which I will not go into detail with today because no, but <laughs> I've had instances where people have said things to me that were offensive. I tried to bite my tongue and not blow it up and call them out. They eventually heard that I was not satisfied with what they said. And then I was made to feel guilty about the exchange, like as if I was being heartless, I wasn't making space. How could I assume what they meant by their comment? 
I had to know their intent wasn't to say something racist or there was their intent wasn't to hurt me. I really, really struggle in those situations. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. And the feedback that person gave me was that I was heartless and I came off very cold, but it was because I'm detaching your fragility. You said something mean, yeah. not something mean. You said something racist. Yeah. And now I, because I'm not being nice and holding your hand, have done something wrong. Now I'm mean. And so... I've really grappled with that because I've lost, I have definitely lost friendships or had friends be at a distance because I've said, you know what? I can't keep doing this emotional labor. You have to figure out, oh, I was wrong. And then you need yeah. to approach me and say you're wrong. Cause it's not cancel culture. It's accountability. I'm not canceling anyone. If you say you're sorry, we're going to work through it unless you just make a habit of being racist. But like that labor, I can't do. I cannot no. do that. It is, it's so, ugh. I, and the thing that's like so maddening to me, it's like, oh, this is how they were raised. Like they literally don't know any better. And, and it makes me just mad at like the system that is America that like, you know, they get to be fragile and like, you know, delicate where we have to be like, no, you know, I, I need to call you out. And here's why that is real for me personally. I'm trying to get comfortable not biting my tongue in those moments when somebody says something racist or offen offensive. And actually being like, what did you mean by that? Like, you know, like, let's break that down versus waiting, maybe sharing that frustration with somebody else, because then it becomes like a whole issue. But yeah, I mean, it's the fragility is hard to navigate. And it's like, it's taxing. Yeah, I think it's worth the discourse, because yeah. the power of the conversation we're even having now, if I was a white woman listening, I would think, okay, wow, I'm kind of getting some insider tips. I think a lot of the attraction to newsletters like yours is people aren't getting this feedback. And when you think about it, we're, we think of New York City and being home, I know you spent some time in Wichita during quarantine. I spent a lot of time in Ohio. My mom often reminds me that I live in a bubble. Like you live in New York City where there's all these different people and everyone wants to hear what you guys think. And you're talking about DNI at work. And she's like, I sit at work and nobody says anything about DNI. On the one hand, I feel very privileged, but also my mom's reality check is like, this is where the world is. So your your newsletter is giving people space to think through this because some white people have no one to ask. Like I'm thinking about our white friends who have mm -hmm. us and work with black people. The Most of America does not have that. They work with people who look like them. And if they don't work with people who look like them, they probably don't talk to them. So there's this really interesting opportunity to just hear some of these things and change your behavior. I think it's worth unpacking the fragility because that's what stops us from doing a lot of the work. I know personally, I st I've stepped back a lot on, wow, okay, you're not fully hearing me. You're just, you just want to get upset because I called you out. I think they want to hear that they're a good person, you know? Like, I think that's very triggering for them to be seen as a bad person. But if you look at it in the terms of like sexual harassment or sexism, you wouldn't excuse that behavior from a man who is making, you know, slick comments like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know women could be engineers or, you know, whatever <laughs> men say at work. You wouldn't let those things slide by. You would address them either to him, you know, or to HR. And I wish that we would start to see racism as a sexual harassment, like on the same level as, as sexual harassment, like casual racism, because it exists so often, you know, in the workplace. They go unchecked because 
it's hard to have that conversation when people don't understand because they because they themselves might be the problem. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. Like the more we get into it, the more I'm always like it's hard to solve, but I think the work that you're doing now is inching toward it because we're both in a unique space where you have white women friends and you have white women allies that can help you push this message and your authentic voice is what's going to get them through. It's not white women talking to white women. It's a black woman saying, Hey, these are the things that are going on. And whether it be fragility or whether it be like not wanting to be called out. And I love that point about not being a nice person. Racism has nothing to do with being nice. Mm -hmm. Like being a nice person doesn't mean you're not racist. You could hold the door for me and then still say something racist about my hair or whatever. Like, that's not the same thing. There are a lot of nice people, nice, well-meaning people who I've met in the Midwest who are racist. They don't see racism as like, wow, this black woman is speaking up in a meeting. Who does she think she is? Or are, are black people qualified to be engineers? Or, you know, what have you? Like, they don't see the racism that exists on, like, the day-to-day level. The majority of them see racism as, like, I'm calling you out of your name. For me, it's having the space to be mad about it. I think what's really hard when you said you made a good point about black women are expected to just like they're allowed to be fragile and we have to be resilient. There are so many moments where I've had to just like pick my face up and be like, well, they said that to me. And who am I going to tell? Yeah, because the system wasn't designed for us to like vent or be fragile or, you know, or be human, you know, like to be black in America is like to exist without like having your humanity, you know, like we can't like just be, you can't be a black man walking down the street in a hoodie because somebody's going to be afraid that you're going to steal something or rob them. You can't be a black woman that speaks up because they're afraid that you are like too much or, you know, like (laughs) triggering whatever, you know, they have going on inside of them. Like it's, it is hard to exist because we cannot be human. We just can't be, you know, we have to constantly cater to their feelings or what they want. And I don't, I don't think that white people realize like how frustrating and exhausting that is just to have your humanity taken, taken away. I, you know, I think that's why so, so many of us need like safe spaces where it's just like us around because that's when we can really breathe and like let our, you know, like, let our hair down or like be human because existing in white spaces is really, it's really hard. It is really hard, but that's why you are queen community builder Mm -hmm. and you're building yet another successful community. So I encourage everyone to subscribe to Tori's newsletter and follow her on Instagram. You can find her at inclusion unpacked. Tori, thank you so much for joining us. And I love talking to you as always. You too, Shelby. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I would also love your feedback. If you enjoyed the episode or have a comment for me, please leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. See you next week.